Well, good morning. We're continuing our study in the book of Ezra. So if you're here for the first time, we have begun a season entitled Ezra. This is season 55 in God's long-term redemption story series. And uh, we are in episode 3 of season Ezra. And that episode begins in Ezra chapter 5. Ezra is in the first part of the Old Testament. It's right after Chronicles. It's right before Nehemiah, Job, and Psalms. Ezra chapter 5. Please turn there. The title of today's message is, God is Sovereign. God is Sovereign. What, what does Sovereign mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that God is in control. So, so my question to you is this. Who's in control in your life? Now, we all know it's not you. But who is? Now, we want to be in control, but we find ourselves very much out of control. Things are out of control in my life. I have got this door handle on my back patio French door that's out of control. It's been out of control for months. I cannot get that under control. I've got these weeds in my lawn. They're out of control. And all joking aside, on those small little things, it's one thing. But on the big things in your life, are things happening that you don't want to happen And are things not happening that you want to happen? You know someone's in control, but it's not you. Who's in control? That is the question here in this text this morning. The answer is, God is in control. God is sovereign. God exercises his power over his creation to fulfill his decrees, his will. And in particular this morning, his sovereign will, his redemptive will. If if you're wrestling with anxiety this morning, if the question is, who is in control? This text is here to tell you God is in control. Don't be anxious. Though it looks like things are out of control, God is in control. And you can trust him. You can trust him. When you get to that place of saying, what is going on here? God is in control. God is sovereign. And so I just want to take a moment before we get into the text to just pray for you. Because sometimes what we see with our eyes tells us just the opposite. Everything's out of control. Life is careening out of control. And I'm just sort of like, ah, just spinning out of control. God's in control. And for some of you, that out-of-control feeling is leading you to anxiety, panic attacks. I mean, you're you're just freaking out. And this morning, God wants to communicate peace to you. A peace that passes your understanding sometimes. Not a mindless peace, but a peace founded in truth. I just want to pray for you right now, okay? Lord, I'm looking at faces of people that I know very well, some of whom have recently been dislocated from what all they've known from their past, even from their countries. I'm looking at faces of parents who are worried about children. I'm looking at, at faces of those who are underemployed or unemployed and are desperate saying, God, I need a job. I need to provide for my family. Lord, all of us, stand before you this morning to varying degrees aware of just how we are not in control. 
Lord, for those that are afraid and anxious, would you give them peace? For those that are angry about it, Lord, help them to trust in you. For those that are depressed and despairing, give them hope. You're sovereign. You're good. You're in control. Lord, help us now. Speak to us as a church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God is sovereign and he dominates every single page of Scripture, but oftentimes he dominates with an unseen hand. You know he's there, but you can't quite see them. He's not the first character you see, but not here in this text. This morning, in Ezra 5 and 6, God is very much seen. He is dominating the pages of this text. And I want to set the context for you, because this is episode 3 of the Ezra season. This occurs somewhere around 520 to 516 B.C., over 2,500 years ago. It takes place in Israel, modern-day Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, where the second temple is rebuilt. Ezra 5 describes the opposition to God in the rebuilding of this temple. And Ezra 6 describes how God uses his people to rebuild his house so that he might celebrate his salvation with them. But I want to introduce to you some of the characters before we get into the main points. The first character that we see in this text is God himself, the God of Israel. Look at verse 1, Ezra 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then look at the last verse of our text this morning, Ezra 6.22. Ezra 6.22 says the following, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Next, we have the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Going back to verse 2, Ezra 5.2. Please turn there. Look at it with me. If you don't have a Bible, look on with the person next to you. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua of Jehoshaphat arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Who were these prophets of God? The very prophets that we read about in verse 1. Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are the third to the last and second to the last books of the Old Testament. So it looks like they don't go with Ezra, which is at the beginning of the Old Testament, but they do. They were prophesying, they were preaching, much like I'm preaching to you this morning, they were preaching to God's people at the time of Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the second temple. Next, we have Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheth Bazar, Bosnai, and Associates. Sounds like a law firm, doesn't it? No offense to any lawyers here, but they were suing God's people in this text. (laughs) But how many of you know that a lawsuit against God will never prosper? But we read about these guys in verses 3 and 4. Look at your text. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, the province beyond the river is just modern-day Israel. And Shethbazar Bosnay and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, 
Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? So what do we have here? We have this distinction between God and his people who are rebuilding the house of God by the decree of God through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, and we have Tetanai and Shethbar and Bosnia and Associates who are opposing them, and they are suing them before the final character of our drama. And that final character is Darius. Darius is the king. Look at verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheth Bazar Bosnia and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. Here's the question for you. Who is in charge in this narrative? God or Darius the king? Now let me tell you, Darius the king was a significantly impressive person. He was the king of Persia. Persia ruled the then-known world. He was the most powerful man in the world. And Tatanai and Shethbar and Bosnia and associates were writing a letter to the most powerful man in the world saying, listen, we don't like it. These guys are rebuilding the temple. We want it stopped. And the question hanging over this narrative is, whose will will be done? God's will and his decrees or the will of God's opponents. But in the midst of this drama, will the temple be rebuilt? Will Tetanai succeed in stopping Zerubbabel and Yeshua? Will the king Darius finally see that it is God who is the one who rules? Tune in next week. But this week, we actually received the answer. And here's the answer. God is the one who is sovereign, watching over his people. Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Do you see that? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jew, and, and they did not stop them until the report should read Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. God's decree is that the temple will be rebuilt and God is sovereign. God is watching over them. And God's will will be done. The temple will be built. And friends, just as God's eye was on them then, God's eye is on us now. The same God who is sovereign then is the same God who is sovereign now because he never changes. And his temple, the church, will be built. And the opponents will not stop it. What are the opponents for you? Well, the opponents back then, we know their names. But who are the opponents for us today? Well, they're the three enemies of the Christian. Do you know who those are? The world and its system. Satan and all the demonic forces, those two enemies are outside of us. And there's a third enemy within, our own flesh. But God will succeed in his sovereign will in our lives, in his decrees in our lives. What were those decrees? Those decrees are that the temple will be rebuilt. The temple, the church of God would be built. That Christ would be formed in us. And it will prosper Because God said it will. I want to encourage you in that. 
whatever you're going through right now, his will will be done in your life. Back to our text. Because it was succeeding, Tatanai and Chef Bazar and Bosne and associates were very alarmed. So they wrote a letter to Darius. We just read about that letter in verse 6. And they were very, very alarmed. And as they wrote this letter to Darius, they wanted to tell Darius that, hey, listen, the project is prospering. Look at verse 8. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And so Tatanai and Sheth Bazar are trying to intimidate God's people, Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the elders of the Jews. And look at verses 9 and 10. Look what they say. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Where's your building permit? Verse 10, Ezra 5. We also asked them for their names. Get their names. Get out your iPhones. Let's start taking pictures of these people. We're going to post it on the internet. No, even worse. Forget about the internet. We're going to write a letter to the king, and we're going to tell them what you're doing, and we're going to tell them your names. We're going to give them your names if you don't stop this. In fact, the letter that Tatai wrote Darius is preserved for us here in the text. And it provides us some wonderful language because in the letter, beginning in verse 11 now of chapter 5, Tatai gives us the response of the Jews when they came to them and said, hey, stop building this building. You don't have a permit. Who said you could do this? And give me your names. And now in verse 11, we have this rich historical data to help us understand redemptive history back then in 520 B.C. that affects us today in 2015 A.D. And listen to the reply of the Jews to Tatai's accusation and intimidation. And this was the reply to us. So this is the letter Tatai is writing to Darius. And this was there the Jews re- reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel, Solomon, built and finished in the 900s BC. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven previously on Ezra, we talked about that, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean. That happened in 586 BC. Remember, this is being written in about 520 BC and who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Judah was carried into captivity, and the first temple destroyed in 586 B.C. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, around 539 or 538 B.C., some 17 or so years previous to our current episode, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt, and the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazzar, whom he had made governor, and he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt." Now, at the end of his letter, Tatanai says to Darius, this is an amazing claim. Can you please confirm that it actually is true? And Darius investigated the matter. 
And now in chapter 6 of Ezra, we receive Darius the king's letter back to Tatanai, telling him what he discovered when he investigated these claims that I just read that the Jews made. Basically, the Jews said this, we're rebuilding this temple because God told us to. And God moved the heart of, of Cyrus some 17 or 18 years ago. So there's our permission. Right there, pal. There's your building permit. Right here. And so now Darius is going to investigate the king or have his people investigate. And this is what he writes back. Look at Ezra 6.3. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. And so it's really interesting. Darius is going to give us the decree that he found in his records. And that's going to help us with some great details about redemptive history. Let the house be rebuilt, the, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits. So there's some detail that Cyrus, in his decree, said should happen in the rebuilding of the second temple. And its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Interesting. God is sovereign. As one of my professors in seminary used to say, who's zooming who? I mean, God's doing the zoom in here. I mean, you know what, Darius, Cyrus, not only are you going to allow them to build it, but you're going to pay for it. I like that one. Lord, I'll take, I'll take a building. <laughs> I'll take it. With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid for from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, that is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And so based upon the fact that Darius discovered Cyrus's decree, which was about 18 or so years old, Darius then makes his own decree in verse 8. And this is what he says. By the way, in verse 8, I want you to ask yourself a question. Whose decree is this really? Is it Darius's decree? Or is it God's decree that he chose to utter through the mouth of Darius, a pagan king, who thought he was in control of everything, but he's not? Wow, there's, there's rich theology here, friends. Listen to Darius's decree after he discovered Cyrus's decree. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what I shall do for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Listen to Tadnai. Not only are you going to let them do it, but you pay them out of your revenues. The state's tax revenues. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. <clears throat> that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree... Now, this decree had some teeth. Forget about getting a ticket when you run the red light. Listen to what happens to you if you don't obey this decree. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. Ouch. A beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it. Mm. And his house shall be made a dung hill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, was it really you, Darius? Make a decree 
Let it be done with all diligence. Friends, God is sovereign. And he used this pagan king to fulfill his redemptive, sovereign redemptive decree that a savior would come from the Jewish people, that the second temple would be rebuilt, that the altar would be rebuilt, that sacrifices would resume, that God would meet with his people because he is in control. Who's in control, friend, of your life right now? What are you facing? What opponents? What is God's decree? Listen, just as God used Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, so he now uses Darius to fulfill his commands. And in the concluding part of our episode this morning, in Ezra 6, 13 to 22, we learn three great truths about our sovereign God. Point number one, we learn that God completes his house. God completes his house. Look at verse 13. Then of chapter 6 of Ezra. Then according to the words sent by Darius, the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bosne and their associates, I love this, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. They had a court order. You obey the court order, you go into jail, big boy. God moved the heart of Darius and all of these pagan rulers in the land beyond the sea to allow the construction. God is sovereign. The temple is finished by the decree of God. But notice that the work prospered by the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They prophesied the word of God. Listen, clearly the text is going to say here in just a moment when I read verse 14, that they prospered not by Darius's word. Oh, really? I thought Darius released a bunch of money and said they could build. Yes, he did. But they prophesied by the, prospered by the word of God, what Haggai and Zechariah prophesied. Look with me, verse 14 of chapter 6. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered, how? Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. Go to their books later today. Read Haggai today. It only has two chapters. It'll take you longer to find it than to read it. Read Zechariah. Third to the last, second to the last books of the Old Testament. I challenge you to find them quickly. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. Do you see that? Go back to verse 14. They prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. And they finished their their building by how? By the decree of God. Not Darius. Oh, wait, Al. It does mention Darius. Oh, it does. Sure it does. But who do they mention first? By the decree of God in verse 14. Do you see that? Put your finger on it. And by decree of Cyrus. Sure, God used Cyrus. And by the decree of Darius. Sure, God used Darius. And Artaxerxes, a king we're going to talk about a little bit later, of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Probably around 516 B.C. God's people heard God's word spoken by God's prophets and they prayed God's word and they lived God's word by faith and the house of God was finished. God is in control. And this narrative points to a greater temple. This is the second temple. But it points to the temple. This text is designed to point us to Jesus Christ Christ, who is the ultimate temple where God and man meet. Jesus Christ is the place 
where we meet with God. And this temple points to that temple. And that's why it had to be rebuilt. Because God's redemptive purposes had to be fulfilled and would be fulfilled. Because this points to Jesus. In fact, 500 plus years later, Jesus spoke of building a house. Not a temple in Jerusalem. But God's house, the church. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 16. 15 to 18, Jesus speaking now to his disciples. He, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, not on Peter, but on what he said, on the revelation of who God is, on the word of God, just like the temple was built through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. This is my will. It's going to happen. So Peter is professing who Christ is, and Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, your confession of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Tatanai and Shethbar, Bosnia and Associates couldn't stop it. Darius couldn't stop it. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't stop it. Cyrus couldn't stop it. And hell itself can't stop God's temple, God's people from being rebuilt. That's the point. But when you feel like hell has directed all its efforts toward you, you can doubt this a little, can't you? You can get a little tenuous. Oh, let's encourage one another. God's in control. Even though right now it seems like someone else is, whatever it is you're facing, God's in control. And I pray for us as a people that we would have faith to rebuild and build the temple. It starts with building in our lives, what God wants to build. But it moves to building the church. I love this quote by James Hamilton in his wonderful commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. Do you want to be a part of a movement that will toil through difficulty across the ages and come out victorious in the end? Do you want to be a part of a movement that appears to be small and insignificant but will certainly triumph? If so, you should want to be a part of the church. Listen, I understand this. If you're here this morning and you don't want to be a part of the church, it may be because you are not God's. He has not captured your heart yet. You're not one of those faithful Jews in the land that believes there is a God and that he will meet with me through the sacrifices in the altar back then. Today he meets with you in Christ Jesus and perhaps he's yet to capture your heart. If you're not a believer this morning, if the church doesn't interest you, then I just want to appeal to you. We meet with him in Christ, and he's building his church, and this is the greatest endeavor you could ever be a part of. And may you see Jesus, and may you celebrate the salvation of God in Christ. Because friends, that's the end game, to celebrate the salvation of God in Christ. That's why the temple was rebuilt. Point two, God not only completes his house, God celebrates his salvation. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Verse 17. What did they do? They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. 
the temple was the place where God met with his people, where a holy God enabled sinful people to meet with him. That's why there's all this talk of bloody sacrifices. A hundred lambs? 400 bulls? A, that's very expensive. B, that's very bloody. But it's needed because we are sinners and God is holy. And God said, here's where I'm going to meet with my people. And God said that I'm going to actually have you get 12 male goats representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So God is saying, this is for all my people. I'm going to meet with them here. I'm going to celebrate my salvation with my people. They celebrated the salvation of God. And they celebrated it with the feast of Passover. And now is when this really gets specific. Where the point, where the arrow to the future really starts taking shape. Look at verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb. Do you see that? They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. I love what Jim said. It's not just a sacrifice for the church in general, but it's a sacrifice for each one of you, for us. Do you see that in the text? It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the end game. The temple had to be rebuilt. The sacrifices had to be fired up so that God could meet with his people. But here's the end game. Look at it at the end of verse 21. So that they might worship the Lord. The God of Israel. Now this passage describes Passover. For us, we may not understand it. So I want to read to you a lengthy account of the Passover. Because it says in our text that they celebrated this Passover in the second temple in 516 BC. According to the instructions that had been given them by Moses way back in 1400 BC in the very first Passover. And to get the richness of this so that we can ultimately point it to Christ, which is where it is pointing. Let's do some research. In our redemptive story series, we've got to go back to one of the earlier seasons. So we can understand. So let's do that. It's on the screen. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that in the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Very specific, very individual salvation. What's happening in 1400 BC? Israel is in bondage in Egypt. God is going to take them out in what's called the Exodus. And this is the night that they're going to be taken out. What's happening in our text today? Israel had been in bondage to Babylon over 900 years later, a second bondage, and God took them out of Babylon, which we just read about, in a second exodus, and rebuilt the temple, a second temple, and now they're celebrating Passover again, but they're looking back at the first Passover celebration to learn how to do it, and both of them are going to look forward to the ultimate completion of Passover in Christ. You with me? 
All right, verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. Verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. That's why it was unleavened bread. There wasn't time to let the leaven cause the bread to rise. Because it's nighttime and they're waiting. And two million people are going to escape the most powerful man in the world, Egypt. Because God decreed it. Because God's in control. And they're going to go, go out, be constituted a nation, and go into the promised land. Verse 11, once again. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God would take the blood of the lamb, and when the death angel come to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians and his enemies, he would pass over the houses of the Israelites so that they would not receive judgment, as Jim mentioned earlier. That's the meaning of the Passover. The blood of the lamb means that we get passed over on the righteous wrath of God that we actually deserve. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Listen, Moses began it in 1440 B.C., Ezra and Zerubbabel and Yeshua reinstituted in 516 B.C. And dear friends, on April 3rd, 2015 A.D., you can go celebrate a Passover somewhere here in Miami. It's still being kept. It's still being kept. A good Jew understands what we just read and says, I've got to. It's a memorial throughout all of our generations until Messiah comes. More on that in a moment. Dear friends, here's the point. Those Passovers point to the ultimate Lamb of God. And that Lamb of God, according to John, in John chapter 1, verse 29, is none other than Jesus Christ. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward them, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle Paul later, writing not to Jews, but to Gentiles in Corinth, modern day Greece, says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Friends, April 3rd is when Passover begins to April 11th. But oh, friends, in between there, April 5th, 
is Resurrection Sunday. There's no more need for Passover. Jesus has fulfilled that feast. He's the Passover lamb. God passes over the righteous wrath that we deserve because he looks at the blood of Jesus. And I pray that you would celebrate Passover this year, perhaps for the first time understanding this. Perhaps you're seated here and you're not a Christian. Oh, friends, the wrath of God is coming. You deserve it. But there's a way that it would pass over you. And it's not by anything you can do, but it's by the blood of the Lamb of God that was slain, sacrificed, not in some temple. Those temples are gone, but on a cross, on a hill. And that blood avails for us if we repent and believe in him. May you do that. May you do that because the sovereign God not only completes his house, not only celebrates his salvation, but the final point, the sovereign God here communicates his sovereignty. God communicates his sovereignty. We see that in verses 21 and 22. Look at them again. Verse 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, here we go, to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 22, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Friends, here is what God's calling us to do, to worship God. To worship God because he has passed over our sins in Christ, because he is in control, because God completes his house so his people can celebrate his salvation and worship him who is the sovereign of all, who is in control. And that is the main point of this text, dear friends. Trust God, celebrate his salvation and worship him. Trust God, celebrate his salvation and worship him him for he is worthy to be trusted he is worthy to be worshiped his salvation is our only hope it's the blood of jesus that we cry out for i pray that god would give you that hope right now let's bow our heads in prayer worship team please join me father i pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is outside of that covered house where the family has just eaten the lamb of God, where the family has just partaken of the supper of God, where the family has placed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentils, and today in our hearts, the blood of Jesus. And if they're seated outside of that and the death angel is there, your righteous wrath is coming. You are a holy God. That this morning, right now, your spirit would convict them. Draw them. Give them life. And if that's you, oh friend, I'm just speaking to you for a moment. Cry out to God. And Father, for those of us that are saved, we're in the house, but we're worried. We've doubted that you're in control. We're in places we don't want to be. Things that we want to happen are not happening. And things that we don't want to happen seem to be happening all the time. We can't control anything, Father. Lord, we're just saying, what's going on? Lord, right now, may the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who is also our great high priest, who your word says, Father, is seated at your right hand, interceding for us. Lord, help us. Give us your peace. 
Lord, give us your grace. Lord, we need you so desperately. Lord, if, if there's some here that are just depressed, they're believers, but they're depressed. Lord, lift their spirits. May the words of your prophets, actually the word of your prophet, the greater Haggai and Zechariah, Jesus Christ, speak into our souls. In the world you have tribulation. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. O Prince of Peace, come and help those who are anxious right now. Panic attacks secretly in their hearts. They have to pull over when they're driving because they don't know if they can continue. Severe headaches. They can't sleep at night. They lay awake. They dread the evening. Prince of Peace, sir, would you come and just deliver them? Would you give us all now the great profession of faith? Great is thy faithfulness. Let's stand and sing that song together. Listen, listen. If you don't know Christ, but he's calling you, come to him. I invite you to come here. I'll pray with you. Turn to whoever you came with and ask them to pray for you. But if God is calling, may you respond. Let's stand now. Let's sing this song.